Somewhere in the netherworld, Eddie Cochran, Link Ray, Sano and Johnny, and Charlie McGuire are sitting in a bar having a beer. Who the hell is Charlie McGuire? You're about to find out in the next episode of See Here. Episode 74 of the See Here podcast. Welcome. My name is Morris and over in Bath is my colleague, Mr. Bernard Stickwell. Good evening. Now, normally we'd be having our comrade in arms, Mr. Tim Merrill, over in Brantford, joining us to uh, talk about a music-related film, because that's what we do. We talk about music-related films. Circumstances have not allowed Tim to join us this time, so he'll be joining us next month. Hope everything is okay in your wheelhouse, Tim. But what Bernie and I have for you is something very, very special indeed. We've just gone and recorded an interview with Israeli film director Boaz Goldberg. He's just gone and made a wonderful film that came out in 2019 called Tomorrow's Gone. It's a documentary about a great songwriter, great musician called Charlie McGuire, born as Gabi Aboudrachem. But we'll be talking a lot more about that. Now, Bernie, you introduced me to the music only a few weeks ago or a couple of months ago. Yeah, we were saying earlier, but to be honest, I'd never heard of him until fairly recently. And the uh, the record label Numero Group, who sort of specialise in reissues of more obscure musical artists, songwriters, groups. They're across the board, actually, they sort of reissue a lot of things, a lot of different types of music, I should say. And yeah, they released a double LP compilation of Charlie's work. And I heard a few things online and picked up the LP uh, sort of on a whim, really. And it's stunning. And, you know, we spoke about it and uh, you kind of fell in love with Charlie too. Hmm. And it led to this. The album is also called Tomorrow's Gone. It's not a soundtrack to the film as such, but obviously both the movie and this double album has a lot of Charlie's music. He sort of ran through a number of bands. He started out with a group called The Schneck, had a band called The Betsha Un Hillbillies, Modern Dance Club, some stuff under his own name. We'll talk a lot about that in our discussion with Boaz and how he made the film. But suffice to say, if you're sort of wondering who is this Charlie McGuire, and we will be playing some of the music throughout the interview, but one thing we failed to mention in the interview was that his music would have made a really great soundtrack for Blue Velvet. I hope that sort of gives you some idea as to what to expect. Anyway, look, what we'll do is now is we'll play the trailer for the film and then we'll go straight into the interview that we had with Boaz and you're listening to See Here, episode 74. And you'll say, I said, Marshall, fantastic. Have you been uh you've been staying in North Carolina now for a few months or yeah? Ashfield. Welcome back to episode 74 of See Here Podcast and on a Skype connection 
from uh, Batiam. We have director, documentarian, musician, journalist, a man of many talents, Mr. Boz Goldberg. Welcome to see here. Hi. Thank you so much. We want to start off with saying congratulations on the release of Tomorrow's Gone, otherwise known as Machak Va'avar. Before we go into explicitly talking about the film and its main subject, which is Charlie Megira, I wanted to ask you a bit about your own background. The film links your story with Charlie's and you've experienced life as a music practitioner, as a documentarian, and as a critic as well, as a music critic. What lured you to all these fields? Where did you know that music in all these different forms is going to be part of your life? Well, I think at the age of 13 or something like that, Actually, I probably had some kind of a stage fright, so I couldn't do it as the way I wanted to on stage. The field of musical documentary uh, fitted me, you know, perfectly because it really combines and compiles all the things that I had the greatest passion to. To do my first film on such a unique character as Charlie Magira was a real challenge. And that's why I guess it took so much time. The film actually became not only a film about Charlie Magira, but a film about the influence of time on art and on me, mm-hmm. on rock and roll. So it became like sort of a stretch of time. I think that my complexes helped the film be more perspective. <laughs> in the States and around the world the uh, Numero group released that LP a few years ago of Charlie's work that's actually where I first came across Charlie and I spoke to Morris about it and we're, we're both huge fans now it's kind of interesting that you were documenting this stuff pretty much right from the start and you put it together just as all this happens and it kind of feels like Charlie's presence and his kind of maybe not fame is the right word but his stock people are a lot more aware of him now on a sort of worldwide level than they were back when he was creating and performing still when he was still around so in a way it's great that you you caught all this stuff as it was happening and it's there for all of us to see it's actually the same name the numera group had this double compilation on vinyl if the same name as my film tours gone but actually there is no connection i mean i helped them with the inner sleeve the inner text but there's no connection between the film and the numera group thing they started working on the compilation about a year or two years ago. I think that Ken Shipley from the Numero Group, uh, the chief uh, director, just, yeah, just happened to bump him via YouTube. And when you listen to the editing, the the, the soundtrack of the compilation, like versus the film, I mean, the name is the same, the title, but it's a different sequence of feel, I think. Yeah. Because I thought that there were some phases of Charlie Magira that are not represented in my film. And I thought that I picked the best of Charlie from my point of view. If we're speaking about the soundtrack, so I think that maybe it's an interesting point because the first thing I did after the tragedy, after Gabby Charlie died, was to go and record myself a few things that I thought that would, I imagined, that would fit in the film. And then when I started editing, after a long process, like a few months of recording stuff of my stuff into the film and gathering additional archives and stuff I started editing the film as a musical sequence I let the the music guide me and not the voiceover the voiceover was the last thing that I added in the editing process right, yeah yeah so I think that in this way if I may say so I think that the film is quite unique because mostly we see directors they're gathering like all kinds of journalists and friends and artists and they record voiceover and you know like you edit yeah. a TV TV news report but right here it was very important for me that the music will lead everything mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. there were some holes that I, I said, okay, I will add a voiceover because I must, but actually it's a long sequence of music. The thing that I found I really enjoyed about the film was, yes, you do get these long sequences of music, but where you fill in the holes, it's almost like your diary. This is not one of those documentaries, which is the bane of Bernie and my and our friend Tim's existence, <laughs> where 90% of the film is people talking about, oh, the influence Talking he heads. left on me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, there's, sometimes it's done well, but this seemed to me, it was not just so much about Gabby slash Charlie's life, but more about your friendship as well and how you fell in and out. It was like a diary. So when you looked back at it afterwards, was there some level of catharsis? Did you feel it was like a personal diary as much as letting the music dictate? Yeah, of course. I'm again saying that um, I'm using the word challenge because the challenge was in one hand, not to go from a bird view, because I th- I thought that when you're dealing with such a unique and mysterious character, you can't go from a bird view, mm-hmm. you know, to look from up and from above and the BBC view sort of thing. On the other hand, I couldn't be too close to the character because mm-hmm. then I was afraid that it would be like a bombardment of superlatives. So I had to walk in between the, the lines because... After all, it is a, a chronological story that starts in 1995 and ends in 2016. But like the painters say, you know, if you want to be more realistic, do it a bit more abstract. Yeah, I can you, see that. You have to take out a few of the lines to be more realistic. So that's what I've done. The, the film is sort of a fragmental animal. I'll give you an example. There is a shot in the film that I'm visiting Charlie in his flat, in his small flat. Maybe you saw that there is like a hole, a, a big hole in his wall. He filled the hole, he colored it in gold. You know, it's like the Japanese ancient art that sort of uh, you take a vessel and then you have it also in Jewish Kabbalah, this idea that when the instrument is broken, he is actually much more complete when you glue him to again together in gold color. You fill it with real gold. Okay, All- yeah. So I think that maybe that's what I've done. I wasn't trying to do it as sort of the official biography documentary Mm -hmm. of Charlie Magira, but my Charlie Magira. So I filled in the holes, Mm. you know. I was going to say, it's definitely, I mean, as you say, the, the narrative is kind of led by the music. And it's not really focused on a narrative, even though it covers that point, because it jumps back and forth in time a little as well. But yeah, I, I felt that worked really well. I felt it was really sort of impressionistic. It gives a kind of feeling that you must have had at various points during the time in your relationship with him. Uh, not just him, but the whole kind of scene and the, the kind of mod indie type scene that seemed to be going on back then that you're obviously part in, the, had a hand in the creating of. I just think it works very well. I think you, you succeeded in, in, in what you were trying to do that. Bernie's gone and hit about that scene that you helped create. Now, my knowledge of Israeli pop music is limited to... Actually, Bernie and I were talking before you came <laughs> off about Svika Pick, and uh, we're both fans of the Churchills, and I love from my youth Kaveret and Machina and Shalom Chanoch and Arik Einstein. I'm also a big, big fan of. But this seems to be something different. So you refer to the whole indie scene of the 2000s, not so much like of the 90s. 1990s where everywhere else in the world was dancing to the beat of what had come out of Seattle but you say that there was something in the 90s but the big indie scene the best thing happened in the 2000s so can you sort of like lead us a bit through who were the bands what were they doing what made the 2000s such a golden period for Israeli music I actually I'm thinking a lot about this question almost every day and I think that my answer could be also your answer in Australia and your answer 
closer in England because um, the musical culture from 97 to 2004, I'm saying 97 because in 97, the internet became more dominant and you started to get things like Napster and all the downloading music stuff. Mm -hmm. And suddenly not only the one that digs the records had the music, but also it, other it was guys. It more accessible, basically. It you was could more get a hold of stuff and you could hear stuff more, couldn't you? Yeah. 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 So what I'm saying that I think that until 97, the musical culture was a bit more local oriented in every place. But in 97, it started to change. And in 2004, I think that there's another checkpoint. The videos became the thing in, in, in internet. And at the same time, you think that the indie scene would collapse and dissolve, but I think that maybe the big demo of what you see nowadays was in the 2000s, but the bands that the mainstream, if you say, used as the demo were indie bands, sort of indie pop bands. Do you agree? Like the first way, that indie wave of uh, Franz Ferdinand and the Future Heads, yeah. it actually, I feel that it's a long gone wave, but in 2004, 2005, there was an explosion of suddenly indie pop because of the internet. I think that's fair to say. I, I definitely think that's certainly what happened here. Yeah. So also in Israel, there were suddenly so many, I mean, actually all the 90s figures were maybe exploding 10 years later. It had that feeling that everything is happening Although, you know, in reality that a lot of bands were like, you know, sleeping on the... F when they say we're going for a tour, they were actually sleeping <laughs> on French floors and stuff. Yeah. Well, that's international. That's not limited to Israeli musicians. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. the model. Yeah. But if you're asking about the specific indie Israeli Tel Avivian music, some of the bands were also bands that Charlie Megira um, produced in the 90s. Mm -hmm. Like if you know the band Los Kikes. <laughs> like a really cross-genre, crazy uh, skater, punk, metal, hardcore garage that okay. Charlie recorded. It was really, really great. You should dig it. There was a band called Love Grenade that Charlie produced. art punk and the astroglides of course astroglides they were like surf core that yeah there are many actually when everybody here speaks about rock in israel they're talking about the early 90s that's considered to be the big explosion yeah it was a big explosion but in another manner another fashion not the fashion i i show in the film and and you mean was that the kind of sort of mod indie type scene you had? Was that more of a, a smaller sort of insular scene within the larger thing that was going on? Were you sort of listening to specific things there and dressing a certain way? Or were you taking in other influences from what was going on around you? Yeah, it's a good question because Charlie himself always said that the fact that we are not Americans and not the British and not Australians, maybe it's an advantage for us, actually. Mm -hmm sort of and that's what he did you know with this this past that didn't exist that he invented by showing the film also the name of his last band the Betchean Valley uh, hillbillies. hillbillies yeah yeah it's a fantasy they weren't hillbillies really hillbillies or maybe they were you know I'm not but um, <laughs> they weren't really hillbillies in the 50s in Israel but he invented it also in the 90s when we had the glory nights parties one of our friends 
were uh, living in London since 1993, I think. And she was a mm-hmm. big, big mod- modette and she went to all the blow-up parties. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. When she visited Tel Aviv in 96, she said that we have our own unique nuance, maybe. Because I came from 60s garage, American garage, yeah. more or less. And it was like mod meets garage and all kinds of other things. And I think Charlie was like that, too. Because Charlie is first guitar hero, I think. Maybe more than Scotty Moore, the guitarist of Elvis, was Johnny Marr. Okay, the, yeah. So as early as the 90s, we're like in between America and England. Yeah, um, taking in the influences, but creating something unique yeah, in your own. Yeah, Radio Birdman, The Saints, right? The Saints right. from Australia. Not talking about Roland S. Howard and, mm. and E.K. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The scientists as well, I guess. The, and, uh, the scientists, yeah. People like that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Listening to this music for the first time, so I, I got to thank Bernie because every so often we have a conversation when we're not recording a podcast and I just say, hey, what are you listening to? What are you watching? And we talk for a couple of hours just to see what else the other one's listening to. And he was the one who said to me, oh, give this album Tomorrow's Gone by Charlie McGuire a listen. I think you really like it. And it was an understatement. I just felt absolutely madly in love with it. So the album that's available is the one that we spoke about before, the Numero Uno compilation. And it seems like the album is divided into two phases. There's the first record, which first thing I heard sounded to me like, oh, Sleepwalk, Santo and Johnny. He's going for that. That yeah, you know, yeah. That, reverb that, that that muted string sort of effect and there's something I mean even though not vocal wise but there's something about the mood that makes me think of the Everly brothers a little bit as well a little bit yeah all those great surf bands the surf the safaris and the ventures and he's going for that feel and yet there was nothing in that that felt to me like it was trying to be regressive it was just like this is what I love and this is what I want to make of it and then there was a second album where Where I'm getting the feeling of the cure and the cramps in the modern dance club sort of stuff and it's it's really loud and very aggressive so you said that there were some moments that maybe the album didn't necessarily cover well that compilation didn't cover consecutively so like go so was his music in your opinion an evolution or did he just say right I'm gonna stop the the rockabilly late 50s things that influenced me and I'm going to go on to do this harder edge stuff with the modern dance club was it an evolution or was it not this is a line in the sand I'm not interested in that for, for them anymore I want to do this instead I think that it was part of his fragmental attitude he, he always had those elements inside him right from the start even when he was very delicate it was almost eerie and uh, you know a sort of an awkward danger feeling because he still preserved the punkish violent attitude inside him even when he was delicate at the first years you could feel it so I think that for sure he didn't say no I'm not interested in doing early uh, in the in the early years doing delicate staccato everly yeah. brothers music no because he, he always talked about the alternate possibility you know like you see in David Lynch's films and like, like the new age literature that he read and Michal Kahan his girlfriend that was my first girlfriend he had another Michal his very first girlfriend was called Michal too mm-hmm. so he called the it duality yeah yeah or the alternate yeah. possibility yes so he actually came back in 2013 he was back he managed to do a full circle and he came back to the early years only a differently a bit mm-hmm. different mm-hmm. I think don't you think so you know in Israel there is a um, there is this phrase that you say you can't sell ice to the Eskimos I think we say that all over the world but we try oh, yeah you can't fool And, people you can't fake it yeah <laughs> yeah you can't fake it so a lot of Israelis tried to go and you know succeed in England in London in or in many parts in the USA and that it didn't really work and he I think in the last nine months that he lived in North Carolina 
Carolina in 2015, it was amazing. I think that that's maybe his most important phase, that he is a big winner from this era of his life. And as an artist, he sold gold to the Americans and they <laughs> saw him as a more authentic thing than yeah. or as much as authentic as Robert Johnson. I don't know. Right. He wasn't trying to be Shanana. That's a parody. They could tell this music comes from his heart. about rock and roll and what it means and how basically you're you're drawn to it and it's part of you when you're part of it and it's really difficult to explain that otherwise you just you are or you aren't that was exactly him he was summing himself up there wasn't he that was absolutely right and, and it's, it was genuine it was who he was I guess is what I'm saying even though Charlie McGeer almost was a character in a way like you say it was the alternative wasn't it it was the other side of, of Gabby after that incident that you described earlier on in the film with his first band he does his first gig and he gets hit in the head with a bottle at a gig gone wrong he invents the character of Charlie to protect himself and he'd already had issues with depression and you say in the film Charlie was there to protect Gabby but I wanted to know because I'm, I'm not quite sure I sort of detected how this worked in the film how was Charlie different to Gabby was it just like how he internalized his approach to music or on stage did Charlie have the bravery to say things that Gabby wouldn't yeah I think it's the latter Charlie was like sort of a um, created an utopian world and in Charlie's world nothing could harm you nothing could make you go out of your mind Charlie Magira was like the you know the bastard son of someone who watched down by law Jim Jarmusch uh, <laughs> yeah. thousands yeah. of times but the tragedy was that when Gabby needed help in his life, maybe the Charlie McGeera character was so strong by then that it consumed him. Do you think it, Charlie maybe stopped Gabby from perhaps getting some help that he, he might have needed that might have helped him as far as his sort of depression and things like that go? Was it a, a double-edged sword? Was Charlie a shield from that or could he, Gabby have benefited from more help perhaps? It's a good question and maybe there were some watchers, some people that watched the film expect to get a straight clear answer I deliberately didn't want to deal you know in this question in a realistic uh, you know hard-boiled way because I wanted to just to reflect the mysterious character of Charlie McGeera and to make it sort of a secret that he takes to his grave but when we speak now yeah I think that Charlie was uh, at a certain stage was a bit yeah ho holding Gabby back or something just as a part of the film compilation process you know you had all this footage which you'd gone and created and obviously there was something about Gabby in the beginning after you first met after you first became friends you thought I've got to film this guy he's, he's going to be important and you proved to be completely right but when you came to finish the film like in the last couple of years how much cooperation did you need from his wife Silrat from Michal, from Gabby's mother. Did they ask to look at the your presentation along the way? The most important thing for me was to flow with the karma, apart from my daughter. It is the most important, the biggest project of my life. So I, mm -hmm. I, I was flowing with the karma. It was almost all the stages. It was a very solitude kind of work. I deliberately didn't want to, you know, to post on Facebook posts like uh, anyone got archives, footage of Charlie McGeera and stuff. I was acting like the detective that I really like from my uh, crime literature books <laughs> of Michael Connelly and stuff. Okay. Uh, and then you people and people knew me and I had to get a few more things. The family of Gabby really helped. His sister, uh, his parents, they, they really helped. Yeah, I have to say that other people 
I respected the inability to help or they just didn't want to take part in it because maybe it was too painful for them. But I'm saying that I was flowing with the karma because maybe the fact that you don't see Michal nowadays in the film, it actually helps making the the concept of, you know, the intimate thing of between me and Gabi stronger, actually. It helped focus the film on this thing that's the story of two young indie rockers that really yeah. like the same music and I was very okay with that that Michal didn't want to interview nowadays or Sarah. It was really okay. It was I respected that. From the start it was a very like spiritualistic solitude mm-hmm. process. But I have to say that my producer, Eyal Dats, in the last phase of the editing process, he also was actually sort of a co-script. He helped me with the script. He said, Okay, Boaz here. We don't need this part. The first cut was with a little bit more fat. Yeah, yeah. That was a 20-hour director's cut, right? (laughs) (laughs) I guess it must help because you knew Charlie, Gabby, and you were so close to him and the project was so close to you. It must have actually helped to let somebody else outside of that see the extra fat. They could maybe say, maybe you need to lose that or change that or whatever. Because it's you and your vision, and sometimes that's not going to be necessarily what you want to put across to the greater public. Yeah, he he helped making the film more proteins and less fat. Yeah, a little bit. (laughs) So it's better for you. (laughs) Yeah. Have you noticed that actually it's a rock and roll film without sex and drugs? Sex and drugs and rock and roll is very good indeed. Just uh, what music is the only important one anyway, really. I didn't say, okay, I'm going to make a rock and roll film without sex and drugs. When I finished it, I said, wow, it's, I didn't need it. there ever been any rock documentary or rock biopic that's been made in Israel to this point. I've never come across a film like this before out of Israel. Even on a mainstream artist, has anyone done anything before? Yeah, there are a few, but as I said, they're maybe less adventurous in the attitude of the making because they're more like talking heads based and stuff, but there are a few, yeah, yeah. About the top head carriers, Nosea Migbad, the top head carriers, they're very, very prestige, the indie band from Jerusalem from the late 80s, early 90s, and more and more. You you, you can find some. Okay. This thing that I had multiple point of views, like as a friend, for the point of view of a friend, the point of view of the of a music collaborator, the point of view of a journalist, and the point of view of a young cinematographer, it sort of, um, I think, helped the film be one of a kind, probably. I'm really happy with that. I never saw another Israeli film that has this uh, multiple point of view thing. Do you feel that the, the process of making the film was a learning process for you? I mean, did you have a very sort of clear-cut idea of what you wanted to do as you were shooting? Maybe not when you were shooting, because obviously you gathered the footage over a long time, but perhaps when you were oh, editing but, it together. But actually, like this thing... Oh, way. <laughs> remember from the film? Yeah, 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 yeah. So actually, you know, it's in the part that radio interview in in the USA that Charlie is interviewed and is like suddenly pulling out of his pocket a headless Headless Elvis doll. Yeah, I can't even get it out now, but yeah. (laughs) To our listeners, Boaz has just pulled the head off of an Elvis doll, so... uh. (laughs) (laughs) Which is an important part of the film. I've taken a photo of that, so I will be posting that with... uh, Oh, fantastic. It is actually important because it shows you how sophisticated he was, you know. Charlie always dealt with... The ideal rock and roll song for him was... He said that the most important thing in rock and roll is not what's in it, but it's what isn't, what you don't Mm -hmm. hear. 
Yeah. yeah. And also, um, David Thomas from Per Ubo said it. But I showed it to you because just to let you know that it wasn't just to deal with old footage. I was thinking nonstop how to make a visualization of, of things. So this thing I ordered from St. Louis, USA. <laughs> Yeah, like, and it costs me, it even as a, um, a certificate of authenticity from the Elvis Presley estate, it costed me like $130 or something. What? Just, for this, <laughs> just for this part. About your question, yeah, I learned a lot. That's the thing, that's the spiritual thing too, that it's, it's really tragic that the film had its major phase only after Charlie died. But actually, I can say that the figure of Gabby and Charlie McGuire helped me do this once and for all after all these years to get rid of my writer's blocks and everything and do it and he helped me do it after his death sort of his spirit he's looking I over cried. your shoulder yes yeah, sort of I mean I yeah. cried a lot in the editing process he was your friend and this is important emotional spiritual stuff isn't it of course yeah <laughs> spiritual i mean uh, mixing that with rock and roll there was that painting that you show in the film of elvis wearing a talent by the cocktail. oh that's wonderful yeah it's beautiful yeah exactly and you know we had so many talks and i remember in 2001 told him uh, gabby I, i really want to make a movie and he was always talking about diy do it yourself i mean yeah just do it that's what he said it can be like a pepper that you stick to something and and shoot it and just after all these years finally i did it so i learned a lot yeah of course i learned a lot some things were uh, more earthy things about production and stuff but a lot yeah. of things about about art where does it come from i learned a lot sure. from that there's one philosophical question that you posed to charlie in the beginning of the film and then later on in the film he answers it and i'm still not quite sure i understand but there's that conversation where he says rock and roll and art is not meant to make your life better and you ask well what's it for and he says well what do you think and then <laughs> later on in the film he says something about the deterioration of the concept and I'm not quite sure whether he's saying that making your life better is a deterioration of rock and roll or rock and roll is supposed to deteriorate your life. What did you understand by what he was saying there? I remember that he was a lot of he was talking a lot about when the Hindus, when the in when in, in Baranasi in India, the bodies that they're burning the bodies on that big river. I don't remember the name. You can actually benefit a lot of spiritual things from seeing it. He was also into the narrative of Jesus. Christ into the, the idea of all, all this thing about body and spirit. He even said that Elvis's last years were actually he dressed that way in the Las Vegas years and not to show himself but to hide himself, to make only his voice the thing that, that, that matters. The purity of rock and roll. I guess maybe something I think about sometimes is as people who listen to music and watch films and discuss them and talk about them, sometimes the idea of maybe picking something apart to try and work out how it works, why you react a certain way to it, maybe that diminishes the thing that you're taking apart to a certain extent and you're losing some of that purity and spirituality that's hits you in your heart and you have that connection with it anyway. I think that's when he said that, that's kind of my interpretation of it. But Yeah, yeah, it's true. And he meant that the tea deterioration of rock and roll is just to do it just to do it from the outside point of view just to do it for the girls and for the money he was talking about he had this um this phrase when he's i don't know how to translate it to english but it was about being a clown it was like being a half clown something like that but it was to be deliberately a clown that people would think you are a clown, but at the same time, you're doing an important work on yourself. And that's why Elvis Presley was like in his last years, everybody thought that he lost it. But for Charlie Megira, it was the ultimate. He always said there's nothing psychedelic about a band that 
calls themselves psychedelic. He said, psychedelic music for me is Elvis's last years. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it was just the spirit. The body was like eliminated. It was just the spirit. Also, with Sid Barrett, he was always amazed about that uh, reclusive phase of Sid Barrett. And me and him always said that the reclusive years of Sid Barrett were integral part of his art. You can't divide it. It's as much as important as the Piper at the Gates of Dawn and the Metcap Loves. In terms of like the purity of voice, I remember there was a time I saw, I don't remember the name of the film, but it was like an Elvis concert film from 1972-73, I think recorded in Vegas. And on the one hand, yeah, there he is dressed in his rhinestone suit and looking like the clown as it were but there's one song towards the end he's sitting down at the piano he's singing a gospel song oh yeah and yeah, if you yeah. close your eyes you think oh my lord his voice that voice is the most incredible thing I'd ever heard and certainly the best thing I'd ever heard Elvis do and this is in Las Vegas so it pays true to what you're saying about okay let's see if you pay attention to what I do what I look like on the outside with this Las Vegas yeah. clothing or are you going to listen to the voice and at that point I just saw I mean I, my period of Elvis will always be you know that Sun era the early RCA stuff like it is for a lot of people I guess but that voice that I heard in that song was the best I've ever heard Elvis's voice. Yeah, yeah. I think it's the Unchained Melody and it's from Elvis on tour or uh, that's the way it is. And it's like in the film, Charlie um, is talking about that story about the chain gang and the yeah. guard guarding them. Yeah. So it's like in order to go deep, you have to make yourself foolish or a clownish in order to really go deep that's what he did i think that some people that didn't get charlie mcgira thought that he was just yes yeah, sort of a retro elvis impersonator but it was everything besides that How's the film been received in Israel? I mean, like I know with all this lockdown that we're having at the moment, have you had much of a chance to show it? Have there been any festivals or cinema tech? Uh, yeah, of course, it's out. It's been out for a year and a month now, like since oh, May okay. May 19th. Yeah, yeah, it was in Dokaviv uh, Documentary Festival. It showed in cinema text and it's screened in a documentary channel in, in Israel, mm-hmm. in cable TV. Israel-wise, I, I, I'm really happy, but I think that it can be a broad-wise or Australia, England, Germany, USA, mm-hmm. and everything. I think that it could be not as many people saw it. Are there any plans to uh, try and maybe get a physical release on DVD or Blu-ray or other sort of streaming services? Yeah, there uh, are, yeah. People need to see it. I think it's wonderful. Thank you. So, yeah, I think that the film is like, you know, sort of a sequence of a memory I'm fighting for my center in this film. I, I'll put it in other words. I had to find the center of the film through Charlie McGeera's story. It's like when you're making a syrup, like a juice, kind of, juice from syrup. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Concentrate, yeah. And yeah. I think that that's what I've done. I had this early interview and it became through the years the film fantastic so what do you think your next project is going to be I know you're still sort of working on getting Tomorrow's Gone seen before a greater audience around the world but are you already thinking about another film or will you return to playing in a band what's next for you I actually I'm gonna release the 25 minutes that I recorded for the film you, you hear only maybe 10 minutes of it or less in, in different mm-hmm. parts I'm gonna release it as a tribute to Charlie McGeer and stuff but I think that my next film it's sort of a sequel to Tomorrow's Gone but it's You'll be surprised to hear that it's on um, a football, a soccer team from the 80s. Yeah, that I was a big fan of this small soccer team that is not, actually doesn't exist anymore. And I thought that maybe this could be um, a great documentary. I'm trying to get, uh, you know, rare footage of them. Yeah, so it's not like in the, in the Tomorrow's Gone, I didn't post on Facebook. Here I must. In preparation while we were watching this, we also 
watched, I think it was Seret Milchama. Oh, yeah. About the uh, uh, soccer team in Beth She'an. Yeah. Yaniv Edelstein had gone and recommended it to us to say, if you want to get a greater picture of the environment that Charlie grew up in, that Gabby grew up in, then you need to watch this. And that was absolutely fascinating. That's a good tip. Yeah, it's it's a great film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My team is, is sort of um, up until the mid-90s, the, also in England, maybe, I think, or in Australia, the, the, the football teams were connected to the political parties. Not so much here in the UK. It's not a political thing, maybe more of a class thing. And yes. maybe yeah. politics in the sense that there were perhaps certain supporters who held more extreme views than, you know, kind of unfortunate <laughs> racial views or, or, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So. it was like that, I think, in the Soviet Union and stuff. So, uh, Betar Tel Aviv was like sort of the revisionists uh, back then. It was like it was a team that were big in the from the 40s to the 80s, and uh, it was a very small team. And I thought that it could be very cool to make it. And with a lot of interviews, and uh, not interviews, but uh, chats between me and my dad. And uh, right. yeah, could be cool, but it can be another musical project. I'm not sure yet. Well, we'll have to have you back once you do that. Keep us guessing. <laughs> Boas, this has been an absolute treat. It's been wonderful speaking to you. And thank you so much for not only speaking to us, but bringing this wonderful documentary into the world. As soon as you have this streaming on a streaming service physically available on DVD, we'll be posting it all over our social medias. We want people to see this once again with the covid times that we're living in is there any online festival that you yeah. definitely booked in at the moment yeah actually there's an online festival that will start i think today at midnight it's a festival called tokyo lift of 2020 there's also one in uh, Bra- in rio in brazil in august and uh, one in madrid in september yeah fantastic we'll keep plugging away we want people to see this hopefully our conversation will get people to not only see the film but then we'll go back and listen to the music I mean as Bernie and I have been preaching to anyone who will listen that this Numero Uno album is absolutely amazing and it gives the presentation that his music deserves because you know it seemed like from what you were showing in the film he'd record a few CDRs wrap them up in tissue and just hand them out at gigs Numero Uno had given the respect the presentation that it deserves and i've got to say that the booklet that comes with the album is probably one of the best booklets i've ever seen in a record or a cd in terms of giving some of the history it's beautiful it's an amazing fantastic job yeah all right so yep once again thank you very much thanks a lot thank you so much Baez. it's been an absolute pleasure meeting you and talking to you thank you thank you lot. bernie and i'll be back in a moment to talk with you about what's happening for next month's episode of see here we'll be back in a moment <laughs> Once again to Boaz Goldberg for being a wonderful guest on this episode of See Here. It was a great conversation. I wouldn't even necessarily call it an interview. It was just three friends talking about a wonderful movie. He's an absolute sweetheart, isn't he? I'd be very happy if uh, he was to come back and join us at some point. Lovely, lovely guy. I don't think we'll have to twist his arm terribly hard. (laughs) I hope not. So next month will be episode 75 of See Here. Three quarters of a century. That's not too bad. The 100 episode, it's not quite in sight, but it's... God, that's incredible, isn't it? We didn't think at the beginning that we were going to last this long, but there's no way that we're going off air. (laughs) Not without someone forcing us off. Forgot to mention at the beginning of the show that we're very proud to be part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Our huge thanks to them for their support. 
Episode 75 coming out next month, Bernie. It's your pick. What have you got? Something I just happened to come across recently, and I watched it the other day, and I thought it was time we kind of went back to the drive-in for a little bit of kind of lightweight, fluffy fun. So I'm choosing a film from 1977 Mm -hmm. that was directed by Richard T. Heffron, starring Peter Fonda and starring Susan St. James, and it is called Outlaw Blues. Oh, wow. Okay, I haven't heard of this one. Let's not say too much about it, but it's very much a kind of drive-in, fun, exploitation-type movie about a country singer. Okay, well, it's been a while since we've covered a story about a country singer. What was the last one that we did? The one with Rip Torn. Oh, yeah, which I can't remember what that was called, but that was very good. Oh, shame on us. (laughs) (laughs) But, But as soon as you mentioned Peter Fonda, I thought, hang on, 1977? Isn't he talking about the trip? Rip. That was 1967 or 1968. Oh, yeah. Like Jeez, Morris, get with it, man. <laughs> Ten years out there. Good oh, my bad. My bad. Ten years out, Granddad. Outlaw Blues. I am the old man of this troupe. You know that. Well, only just. Mm. So. All right, so Outlaw Blues. I'm looking forward to uh, giving this a watch and we'll have fun conversation. Drive and fluff. We need more of that on this show. Ways you can get hold of us, you can uh, either send us an email at seeherepodcast at gmail.com. If you want to join our Facebook group, we're on facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash seeherepodcast. And that's S-W-E-H-E-A-R, which you obviously know because you're listening to us, but I just thought I'd emphasise that. Uh, also, you always forget Morris as well, but Instagram. We're on Instagram as well. Mm-hmm. See here podcast, all one word. Search that and follow us and enjoy the exciting pictures I shall be posting. I've actually got one I'm going to send to you. I think it's a good one. I think on that note, just we look forward to having our beloved Tim return to us next month. So until next month, please look after each other. If you've got to go out, stay away from other people. Wear a mask, for God's sake. Seriously, what's wrong with you? Wear a mask. I hope that you're uh, not doing it too tough. Listen to a lot of music. Watch some great films. Use this time indoors to watch great films, listen to great music, and to tell everyone that you know about the See Here podcast, because we need lots and lots of people to listen to us and talk about Charlie McGinnis and about all other sort of manner of wonderful music related films until next month be nice to each other look after each other and all the best cheers bye bye It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.